You're listening to Family Life at Cornerstone. A weekly devotion about what's going on in the life of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. My name is Justin Wheeler. I'm the preaching pastor at Cornerstone. And today, I want you to just take a little bit of a break with me. I want us to talk about the gospel. More specifically, I want to talk to you about chapter 2 in Jerry Bridges' book titled The Gospel for Real Life. Now, if you are a friend of the podcast, you've been following along with us maybe last year or certainly into this year, um, we just started looking last week at this book, this book by Jerry Bridges. And the main idea of this book we discussed last week is our need as Christians to recognize the unsearchable riches that we have at our disposal in the gospel. Right? That's, that's the point of this book. Jerry Bridges wants us to learn just how important the gospel is for every single day of our lives. And he uses that phrase, unsearchable riches, because, well, he takes it right out of the New Testament. But in order to help us understand the unsearchable riches that we have at our disposal, he, he teaches us this uh, illustration. And it's an illustration of a man who had been given a huge sum of money. Now, prior to being given all this money, this man was a poor man. In fact, he was a slave. He was a servant. But his master, before he passed away, he had left the man a fortune. Just a fortune. But the guy was so uninformed about money that he really had no idea just how wealthy and how blessed he was. And here's the point of that particular illustration. And here's the point that Jerry Bridges wants to make in this book. Many Christians today think of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in very simple terms. We think of it as that message of truth that gets us in the door. But we fail to realize that the gospel is so much more. The truth of what Christ has done for us opens not just the door to spiritual life, but it throws the doors wide open to full access to God and all the gifts that God has to give. And so last week, we just began to scratch the surface of this idea that there is more good news in the gospel than most of us think about. And this week, we're going to begin to understand just how good that news really is. Now, this book, according to Bridges, is really about helping us grow in the art of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. He wants us to learn not only how to rehearse the gospel, but why we should rehearse the gospel on a regular basis. He wants us to live each day of our lives in the truth and power and hope and joy that the gospel brings. But he's real honest, and he says, listen, in order for us to do this, in order for us to understand the importance and, and the, the weight of the gospel for every single day of our lives, we really have to understand the gospel better. And that's where chapter 2 is going to take us. Now, Bridges kicks off chapter 2 with a very powerful statement. Here's what he says. He says, the death of Jesus Christ was the most remarkable event in all of human history. Now, this is really bold. And it is 100% true. But why is it true? What makes Jesus' death more remarkable than all the other deaths that occur each day and throughout history? What makes Jesus' death more remarkable than all the other deaths that occurred in his day or even by crucifixion? Well, the answer about this, the answer to this, is not about how Jesus died, but why he died and what happened after. Okay, well, hold on a second. Really, it, it goes even further back than that. 
the, the most, one of the most important things we have to understand and, and where I want us to begin today in this discussion is not really about how he died or even why he died or even what happened after, but I want us to understand first who he was. It's really important for us to know who Jesus was because his identity helps us to understand his importance and the importance of his death. And to answer this question of who is Jesus, I want us to hear from Peter and then from God himself. Now, there's a very well-known dialogue that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. He sits down with them, and this is in Matthew chapter 16, and he asks them a question. He says, um, who, who do all the people out there say that I am? And they begin to answer, and, and you know, they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, some say you're this, some say you're that. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, okay, well, thank you for answering, but, but listen, I want to know what you think. Who do you say that I am? And the Bible tells us that Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him and he says, well, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. In other words, he says, you're absolutely right. And God is the one that made you aware of this. So what Peter says is not you're another prophet. And what Peter says is not that you're just a great man. And what Peter says is not that, that you're just a, another you know, individual in a long line of spiritual leaders that God sent his people. He says, no, you are the, the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. In fact, you are the very son of the living God. Now let's hear from God the Father. So that's what, what the apostles said. What does God say about who Jesus is? Well, we don't have to look real far to find this. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, this is John the Baptist, in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now this is God the Father speaking, and He is speaking about at the baptism of His own Son. And at the baptism of His own Son in Mark chapter 1, God says, This is my beloved Son. Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah whom God promised to send to rescue His people from their sin. He has both divine and human DNA, and that's why we call Him the God-man. He is deity clothed in flesh, or just to use a biblical term, He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, here's, here's what that means. Jesus is the most unique man to ever walk this earth. He is the very Son of God. But this brings up a whole host of, of follow-up questions. If Jesus was the most remarkable man to ever live, if, if Jesus was God in the flesh, the most remarkable person to ever walk on planet earth, if he was the one and only Son of God, then why, why did he die? And that's the question that chapter 2 is aiming to answer. And in order to get it an answer, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus, well, Jesus intended to die. 
It, it didn't happen by accident, and it did not take him by surprise. And, and we know that it didn't take him by surprise because throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus predicting and pointing to his own future, a future that included being arrested by the chief priests and killed. Let me read uh, uh, from Luke chapter 18. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're, they're journeying through Judea and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, hey, we're almost there. And when we get there, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, Jesus, this is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has predicted his own death. And, and what that tells us is that Jesus knew this was coming. And he embraced it. And even in his statement there, he, he references how the prophets foretold that this was going to be accomplished. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a plan B. This didn't take anyone by surprise, much less Jesus. He knew this was coming and he embraced it. In fact, the Bible is going to go a little bit further and tell us that he came for this express purpose. But why? Why did this, the most unique man to ever walk on the face of the earth, the Son of God, why did he come to die? He came to die for us. More specifically, for our sins. Now, I'm going to quote again from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a church of believers, a church of Christians. And he says this, Now, guys, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, let me stop there. And that's, that's fascinating, especially given the, the study we're doing right now. Paul is reminding this group of Christians of the gospel that he already preached to them, which they already received and which they are currently standing in. In other words, he is preaching the gospel to people who already believe the gospel. Why? Because we need it. We don't just need it to get us in the door. We need it to fuel our lives of faith. And, and this passage is evidence of that fact. But he goes on and he says, here's what I want to remind you of, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So here's what Paul's pointing out. He first of all points out that we need to hear the gospel more than once. We need to be reminded of the gospel. But he also is pointing out that, the, that Jesus died. The reason why Jesus died was for our sins. Or, or more specifically, He died for the sins of His people. And, okay, so at this point, let's just back up a minute and let's think about all of this. Let's think about the fact that the Son of God, the most remarkable person to ever live and walk the earth, knowingly and purposefully came into the world in order to die for the sins of His people. He took our place in order to free us from the penalty of our sin before God. But here's a question. Did it really have to go that way? I mean, couldn't we be saved on our own or at least in a way that didn't require the death of God's Son? And, and this is where Bridges anticipates our response. And he writes this. He says, We will never understand the cross until we begin to understand something of the nature and depth of our sin. 
And to understand that, we must go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, he starts in on this particular line of thinking on page 23 at the top under the heading of Adam's sin. And he's, he's trying to help us understand why did it have to go this way? Well, it had to go this way because that's what was necessary in order to free us from our sin. Now, what is sin? Okay. Well, sin is any transgression of the law of God. There's the catechism answer. Sin is any time we break the command of God, either by uh, committing something, doing something that God told us not to do, or when we fail to do what God has told us to do. But there's more to it. There's a story that goes into our understanding of sin. Uh, and And it has to do with the Garden of Eden. Now, Bridges goes on and he he just tells the story. He reminds us that when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them one simple rule, one simple prohibition, and that was to not eat from the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this was not a huge, hugely difficult imposition, right? There was nothing inherently evil about the tree. Um, God could have selected perhaps any tree in the garden, Bridges says, but the, the point is that obedience to this particular command was not a big deal. It wasn't very challenging. It wasn't very hard. God had given them a garden full of trees and full of fruit, and they had access to all of those trees, and they could eat of everything that was there. But there's this one tree that God said, don't eat. Because when you do, you're going to die. There was a consequence to this. So it wasn't a huge inconvenience, and yet they didn't obey. They didn't obey because, well, Satan, a serpent, came in and he tempted. He twisted the word of God and he led them into sin and they disobeyed God. And the Bible says that when they did, that their eyes were opened and they realized what they had done. Now, we call this instance, this this historical event, we call this the fall of Adam. And in this, not only was there a loss of relationship with God, but this act by Adam and Eve resulted in what we call just the moral depravity of humanity. All of humanity is corrupted now because of the, well, the, the consequence of their sin. The consequences of Adam and Eve's sin went far beyond their own banishment from the garden and the presence of God. This is what Bridges is saying on page 24. He said, God appointed Adam as the federal head or the legal representative of the entire human race. And consequently, his fall into sin brought guilt and depravity on all of Adam's descendants. And so we we talk about, in Christian theology, the fall of man leads to the guilt of man. We're guilty of sin because uh, we commit a sin as, as soon as we have the opportunity, but we also have a nature that is bent toward that particular sin. He goes on and he quotes from Romans chapter 5 where Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. So death was the sentence, sin is the, 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 the charge, and guilty is the verdict. We're all guilty, and sin is rampant in our lives. Okay, so we're, we're all sinners, and we all sin. Even as Christians, we see the lingering, deep-down effects of sin. We may not always engage in the type of sins that are more prevalent in the culture, 
but we still commit the more refined sins, if you will, of selfishness and covetousness and pride and self-righteousness. I mean, you name it, and we still have a natural bent toward what God calls sin. And, and again, sin is not just those things that we do that are wrong. It's the things that we don't do that are right. For instance, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and Bridges gives us a little short list of what that looks like, or at least a part of what that looks like. It looks like loving God with all of our desires. It looks like rejoicing in and meditating on God and on God's Word and on Jesus and, and rising early to pray to Him. It means delighting in doing God's will, no matter how difficult it might be. It means being content because we know that, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. It means not being discouraged because we know that God is working all things together for our good. And we don't do that. <laughs> I mean, we don't live that way. We're commanded to love God in these ways, and we don't. Or what about the command to love our neighbors as ourselves? Do we fall short on this one? Well, of course we do. And these two commands, love God and love your neighbor, they're, they're enough. And, and our inability to keep these are enough to show us just how much we have sinned, we do sin, and probably will sin, not just today, but over our entire lifetime. I mean, the reality is we are deeply, hopelessly infected with sin, and God knows every detail of that. Nothing is hidden from Him. He has in His book written down every day of our lives and everything that we have ever done. I mean, we have no place to hide from God, and because of Christ, we don't have to. The gospel brings us uncomfortably face-to-face with the immensity of our sin, but it also brings us gloriously face-to-face with the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Well, it means that when we came to faith in Christ, when we believed the gospel and called out to God for forgiveness, everything changed. We went from being a guilty sinner deserving hell to being a forgiven sinner promised heaven. It means that Jesus' death on the cross was a transaction between the Father and the Son to pay the full price for our sins so that we could go free and become part of their eternal family. It means that our eternity is shaped by and our day-to-day life is lived within the pressing reality of the gospel fresh on our minds. Every time we sin, we should remember the price that Jesus paid for us. And it should move us to repentance. It should move us to joy. And then it should cause us to strive for obedience. You see, when we focus in on the truth of who Jesus was, why he died, and what he accomplished in his death, we come to realize that Jerry Bridges was right. The death of Jesus Christ was the most remarkable event in all of human history. Now that's chapter 2. And next week, in chapter 3, we're going to be reading about the pleasure of obedience. How the gospel not only helps us understand and take pleasure in Jesus' obedience, but how it impacts and motivates our obedience as followers of Christ. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBCWiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thanks for listening.